0: Please be seated. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers, the sins and the wrongs that they have committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke to them kindly. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to welcome everyone to uh, Collegiate Kickoff here at Church of the Avon Hope. This is the weekend, as Kyle mentioned, that students from all over the tri-state area come and worship and fellowship Uh, with us and hopefully build meaningful and lasting relationships with one another. Uh, We had Gradient last night. Did anyone go to Gradient last night? I heard it was good. I heard it was awesome. There's a big potluck planned right after lunch today, and I believe there's another party in the park this afternoon. So be ready. I'll let Kyle talk about that. Um, Are there any college students here this morning? Anybody? In college or grad school? Raise your hand if you're in college or grad school. Okay, very good. Good job. Thank you for coming to second service uh missed you this morning at first service that was not great today we're also beginning a sermon series on success so i thought it would be a good idea by acknowledging how elusive success can feel at times and if you don't feel this way don't worry your time is coming as some of you may know i am a dean at columbia university and this time of year particularly if you're a college student or a grad student it feels like a dawning of a new chapter of life. The weather is cooling off, leaves start changing colors, pumpkin spice lattes back at Starbucks, and students are embarking on a new academic year. No matter what happened last year or last term, this is a fresh start. A couple weeks ago, I was speaking with Pastor Kyle's dad when we got into a conversation about the differences between the college student experience today versus the experience we had just a few short decades ago, decades ago, and a couple things stand out first. First off, technology and social media, right? Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, none of these were around back when I was in college, and that's a good thing because none of us would be employed, all right? As far as Pastor Todd goes, I promise you he'd likely be a plumber because Todd and I went to college back in the day and he has not always been the saint that he is today. Very nice. And I can say that because Todd's in Spain right now, you know, uh, officiating some sort of wedding that apparently none of us got invited to either, so that's all right, okay. But if you wanted to connect with someone, you had to actually call them on the phone. Not a cell phone, but like a landline. Anyone remember landlines? These are phones connected to a wall. Okay, it's a landline. And when you made plans to meet with someone, let's say at 8 p.m. at the mall, you had to show up. And if you were a few minutes late, the obvious assumption was that you were dead. Because no one knew where you were. You know, An ambulance would drive by and they're like, oh, Alex is probably in there because he's not here now. He's probably hurt. Now, when you make plans to meet someone at 8 p.m. and you're running late, you'll likely get 300 play-by-play text messages of what's going on. Hey, I'm running late, just left the office. Oh my goodness, you're running, getting on the train now. Oh, train delayed. Oh my goodness, someone got sick on the train. Here's a selfie, how do I look? LOLs. Yes, Annette, you look great. I'm hungry, please hurry. That's, That's normally my response. I also remember getting my first email address. Does anyone remember getting your first email address? I got my first email address in college, not because I was late to the game, but because email was just invented, right? And it was kind of like this Brian Gumble moment, You're like how, did this, how does this work? You know, does it doesn't need a stamp, you just send a message and you can immediately communicate with people. I think my email address, my first email address was like Starlord7875732 at like CompuServe, it was terrible. Another thing that has changed over the years has been parental involvement in a college student's life. When I got to college, my mom came with me took care of whatever payments that had to be made, and left. And I'm fairly certain my dad had no idea where I went to college, even though it was in the same town where we lived. No interest. It's not to say that they didn't love us, but in fact, we were definitely kind of on our own. Today's parents are a little different when it comes to collegiate involvement. I oftentimes have students and parents, or I actually have parents come into my office today and they say, well, I'm just here to make sure that Johnny takes care of everything he's supposed to do. Obviously, we will allow him to study anything he wants to study as long as he's pre-med. And he is free to make all of his own decisions as long as he checks in, checks in with us and we approve. My response typically is, and, and where's Johnny now? And they're like, "Oh, Johnny was so tired he's asleep, so he's in his dorm room sleeping. I'm like, "It's Tuesday at 11 o'clock in the morning. He sh- should be here." And they're like, "Oh, but he's not going to be." But although some things are different, many of the challenges that college students face today remain the same: Academic stress, figuring out what it is that you want to study, or if you can handle the academic rigors of college or your program. Or having to fight the imposter syndrome that plagues so many college students today. There's also financial issues. How will I pay for books or my meals, or how will I pay for my loans when I graduate? In 2018, Forbes reported that the total U.S. student debt was over 1.5 trillion dollars, and that was all just because of Andrews University. I gotta say that was no, that's that was, that's my own experience there. But there are over 44 million people with college debt, and the average student loan debt is at about $38,000 per person. And 2% of those debtors owe over $100,000. There's also personal uh, adjustment when it comes to college. Making friends, losing friends, getting into relationships, falling out of relationships, and deciphering what someone's real motives are when they slide into your DMs at 2 in the morning. That's what someone told me by the way, that's what happens. Not to mention all the questioning that starts happening when you get into college, whether it's questioning your faith, your politics, or your sexuality. The main thing that hasn't changed is that no matter how well you plan or how well your parents try to plan for you, or no matter how hard you try to fit things into a perfect little box we call our lives, that things frequently do not go the way we planned And success can feel elusive. I remember a time in college when I was thinking about my future and about what was going to come next after I graduated. And I was at a church, and uh, Pastor Dan Cerns comes up to me and says, Alex, I think you're going to be a pastor one day. I was like, really? He's like, oh, yeah, I think you're going to be a pastor. I'm like, did my mom put you up to this? He's like, no, no. I'm like, because if you knew what I was doing last Saturday night, you would not be saying this. He's like, no, Alex, I can feel it. You're going to be a pastor. He insisted. I don't know if anything like that's ever happened to you when someone kind of shares something to you. It could be a stranger, and you interpret it as like the word of the Lord, right? It's like you don't even know what's happening, but someone told you something, it stays with you. Um, I was at a bodega in our neighborhood. I'm sure Danny knows it's on 116th and Broadway, and uh, I always get my uh, egg and cheese on a roll and a coffee. It's like two fifty, very cheap. I'm getting my uh, coffee, minding my own business, and the guy behind me says, hey, did you hear about the mega millions? I'm like, what mega millions? A mega millions, it's up to $500 million. I was like, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, I think you're going to win it. <laughs> and I was like, what? He's like, no, no, I think you're going to win it. I'm like, me? He's like, yeah. Are you going to play? I'm like, I don't know. So I ask you this, congregation of good Christian people, Philosophical, ethical, and moral considerations aside, if you were in my shoes, would you buy a ticket? Raise your hand if you would buy a ticket. Okay. Raise your hand if you wouldn't buy a ticket. Oh, okay, we'll talk later. So, so I didn't buy a ticket. I bought ten tickets. Okay? I literally bought ten tickets at the bodega, and I will tell you this is the first time I've shared this with the church. I won absolutely nothing. Not, not one dollar. Right, But I thought he was like the word of the Lord. Now, we'll say a week later, same bodega, same guy, talking to a different guy in line. Guess what? He was telling him he was going to win the lottery as well. This guy. Anyway, back in college, several of us are in a dorm room, and we're staying up late, and we're talking about the meaning of life, and that was one of my favorite things that happened in college, when everyone gets in a dorm room, just talk all night, solving the world's problems. When we get on the topic about the future... Now, my buddy Scott had recently decided he was going to go to law school. When, we asked, when I asked him why he was going to go to law school, he's like, well, you know, it's popular with the girls. And I was like, okay, good enough reason. Meanwhile, my friend Roy had just announced he was going to go to seminary. Intrigued, I was like, well, Roy, what made you decide to go to seminary? He's like, well, listen, the strangest things happen. I was at church a couple weeks ago, and Pastor Dan Cerns comes up to me and says, Roy, I think you're going to be a pastor one day. And so it just clicked. I'm like, Pastor Dan Cerns told me the same thing. He's like, really? He's like, yes. Anyway, Pastor Dan Cerns was dropping pastoral mustard seeds everywhere he was going. I will say it worked out for Roy. He's now the pastor of a church in Southern California in a town called Loma Linda. I don't know if you've ever been there, but if you run into him, his last name is Ice. Okay. But it was a moment then that I decided during that conversation that I was going to go to law school. Not for any particular reason, but because I figured I should do something. And as the saying goes, the best decision is the right decision, the second best decision is the wrong decision, and the worst decision is no decision at all, right? So off I went to law school. I still remember the welcome from one of our law professors at Baylor University in Texas when he said, Everything you have heard about law school, that's a country accent I'm doing, by the way. I'm trying to, okay. Everything you have done, everything you have heard about law school is true. The first year, we will scare you to death. The second year, we will work you to death. And the third year, we will bore you to death. Just like your first three years of marriage. And he was right about the law school part, anyway. It was pretty scary. Now. Do we have any lawyers here today? I think we have a few. Okay, you made it. Good job. We have the, Derek raise his hand. We have the, the law firm of Linton Brown and also many people here. If you ever need a lawyer, this is the church you have to come to, by the way. Stacked, and they will take care of you. But they will t- probably tell you that law, law school is not necessarily for everyone. When I arrived at law school, I knew within the first three to four minutes, this was not going to be for me. And at some point during the semester, the second year law students were participating in a mock trial. You've heard of mock trial? And it was a part of a mock trial and I volunteered to serve as a bailiff. The bailiff is the one that introduces the judge and the court, the judge to the court and makes sure that everything uh, stays in order. So I introduce the judge and the mock trial teams begin making their opening statement. And in the middle of one of the student's remarks, the judge interrupts Mr. Sims, and this is how they did it in law. school. they always referred to you as your last name. Mr. Sims, Mr. Espana, whatever, Mr. Linton. And I don't remember anyone's first names. I remember everyone's last names. And I remember it was Mr. Sims. And Mr. Sims was getting dressed down, essentially. And when his team members tried coming to come into his defense, forget it, the judge quickly shut him down. For what seemed like an eternity, this poor guy, Mr. Sims, could not say anything to the judge's liking, as we could only watch in horror as the judge pounded him with question after question until things utterly spiraled out of control to the point where Mr. Sims' body, body cut the oxygen flow to his brain. His eyes rolled up in the back of his head and he completely passed out. Head hitting back of table out. It was just a few days after this event that my friend and I, Keith Good, loaded up my Jeep and we drove to Mexico, leaving law school behind, which is a completely different sermon series called Don't Run Out of Money in Mexico. That's the next next sermon series. You see, even though I was never that excited about going to law school myself, it made my parents proud, seemed to impress people, promised to lead me to a world of riches, but in the end, for a variety of reasons, things didn't feel right. I wasn't happy. And when you're not happy, you tend to struggle. And when you struggle, things can start going poorly. But the fact that I knew it didn't feel right forced me to reflect on what I really wanted. From a certain standpoint, law school was an expensive waste of time. My dad used to always call it, it was my summer camp experience. But if it had been better fit or if something would have been a little easier, the path definitely would have been easier, but I still would have been walking in the wrong direction. It's helpful to know if you're moving in the wrong direction, but if you're truly lost, how do you know if you're going the right or the wrong way? In 2007, Jan Salman, a researcher from Germany, dropped a group of volunteers in the Sahara Desert and tracked them for several hours. Salman was interested in the widespread belief that lost travelers end up walking in circles, a notion that had, been, that had never been properly tested but has in fact become firmly entrenched in our conscious. How many of you have heard that? When you get lost, you walk in circles. It's usually in movies, like people are trying to run away from somebody and they always end up at the exact same spot. Tracking the group of GPS, the participants that had been dropped in the desert did indeed end up walking in circles with no preference for any direction, some veering left, others veering right, but they only started meandering once the Sun was no longer visible. Scientists have put forward many explanations for the circular treks of lost walkers, with one popular theory focusing on the belief that most people have one leg that is longer or stronger than the other and that over time these differences add up to a curving or circular course. Now, I had never actually heard that and I don't want to get too personal. Does anyone have a leg that's longer than the other? Does anyone? Really? Have, do you find yourself walking in circles? Don't answer that. Okay, that's, that's awkward. We'll talk about that. Okay. But yeah, that, that was actually one of his hypotheses. But Yaman actually did not believe in that hypothesis, actually. He did not buy the longer or stronger leg theory, so he decided to try another experiment. This time, taking 15 participants... He took them and dropped them in the middle of a forest for 50 minutes, but this time they were all blindfolded. The results? Every single blindfolded participant walked in very random paths, including large extravagant loops, and on occasion, surprisingly small circles of as little as 15 yards in diameter, little enough to fit into a basketball court. So it seems that with some sort of reference point, like the sun, people are entirely capable of walking in a straight line, even in a desert where dunes obscure the horizon and when people have no idea where they're going. Yet once it becomes cloudy, and if the sun is no longer visible, we begin walking in circles. Salmon discovered that without landmarks, the participants were relying on feedback from their bodies and their sense of balance. These cues can help over short distances People did not immediately start walking in circles, but Salman says their bodies soon build up what he calls sensory noise. And this sensory noise starts interfering, interfering with their sense of direction and can cause a person's path to drift. I imagine there are moments when we make decisions based on the sensory noise and moments when, we, when the sensory noise keeps us from making the right decision. But what is the sensory noise that causes you to drift in your life? Either way, here we are on this journey, often feeling alone, though we are surrounded by friends and family and roommates and colleagues and church members desperately trying to get on the right path. Sometimes you think you're making progress, but you're walking in circles. And on the other hand, sometimes you think you've taken a terrible detour but it ends up being a shortcut to where you actually want to be. One of the best examples of this reality in Scripture is the story of Joseph. You all, I'm sure, know the story of Joseph fairly well. Um, It's found in Genesis, the books 37 through 50. It's pretty big. Um, But he is the son of Jacob and Sarah. He is the 11th son of 12 boys and he is favored by his father, and he gets this coat of many colors, and the colors like make his brothers go crazy because they're jealous. I, I think the, um, the, the, the coat of many colors is something that stands through generations. I think they'd call it even Gucci. You know, it was so nice, so fancy. I think that's what Derek would call it. Gucci. It's Gucci. Okay. So Joseph thinks he's going to grow up to be a shepherd like his brothers, but his brothers can't stand him because it's very obvious he is their father's favorite. Now, uh, some of you may know this or not, but I have one child, and I figured out after reading the story of Joseph why I only have one daughter because I promise you I would play favorites. You know what I mean? I'd be a terrible parent. I don't know if you have siblings whatever, and you sometimes think your parent, you know, faces. I would absolutely be like, who wants to be my favorite? Oh, thank you for ironing my shirt, favorite child. You know, it would, I would be a terrible parent. But this is what the brothers, uh, Joseph's brothers, witnessed, right? They witnessed their dad play uh, a favorite with um, their brother. And they detested him, they hated him. And then Joseph started having dreams. And I'm sure you've heard about these dreams where the bunches of grain, um, 11 of them start bowing down to um, Joseph's grain, and then the stars and the moons start, I don't even know how stars and moons bow down. I, I can't figure that, but they bow down to Joseph's stars and moon, and, and Joseph, I don't know if he did this on purpose, but like he told everybody, you know? It was like a big deal. He's like, hey, listen, I don't know if I told you guys, but um, I had this crazy dream, and your stuff was bowing down to my stuff, right? And so that didn't go over too well with his brothers. So go figure, they decided they wanted to kill him, right? I'm not sure that's the answer that most siblings would take when they're frustrated with the sibling, but they were like, let's kill him, right? And so they hatched this plan, and sure enough, um, they, the moment came when they grabbed Joseph, and as they're about to kill him, uh, Reuben, the older brother, decides, oh, listen, wait a minute, before we do that, let's just throw him into a pit, and let's really you know, take a couple minutes to decide what we want to do. So they threw him into a pit, And they waited, right? So then Reuben decides to leave, and I don't know why he left. But then while he's gone, the other brothers get together and say, you know what, you're right. It's going to be a bad look if we kill this guy. So let's just sell him into slavery and make it look like we kill him. And that's what they did. Now, can we all take a moment to acknowledge how messed up this is, right? And you thought your family had problems, and you thought you had sibling rivalries. Eventually, Joseph gets sold to Potiphar, where things start looking up for at least a little bit. Joseph is able to serve Potiphar's house faithfully and with integrity, and Potiphar loves him, until enter stage left Potiphar's wife, who gets involved in the story. And Joseph's reward for not sleeping with his master's wife is getting thrown in prison. But even while he is in prison, the lowest of all lows, God was still with him just as he is with us when we are in our lowest of lows. While in prison, Joseph is able to tap into his one skill set he can still use, and he accurately interprets the dreams of the pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker. And spoiler alert, it didn't work out so well for the baker. Again, read the story, you'll feel sorry for the baker. And because of his ability to interpret dreams and eventually pharaoh's dreams, Joseph's life is transformed from prison dweller to Pharaoh's right-hand person, second in command of all of Egypt. And then seven years of prosperity happened, just as he had predicted. And then seven years of famine hit, just as he had predicted. And then Joseph's brothers come to Egypt and bow down before him, just as he had predicted. And when his brothers show up, Joseph recognizes them and is faced with quite the dilemma Do I make these guys suffer, or do I help them? Well, as outlined in Genesis chapter 48, he does a little bit of both. But in the end, he is able to help his brothers, the same brothers that almost killed him and eventually sold him into slavery, the same brothers that were responsible for years and years and years of misery, a time when Joseph thought he was lost forever, that he was never going to find his path, these brothers He forgave, which leads us to the verse that I read earlier. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide you and your children and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. All Joseph wanted to be was a shepherd, but despite a path that was bleak and often miserable, God had a different plan in store for him. You see, God can use a bad situation for good. What you think is a detour in your life ends up being the best path to what you truly want. Without going to law school first, and wandering in my own personal circles, I wouldn't have ended up at Andrews University where I met my beautiful wife and ended up having an equally gorgeous and talented daughter. Or meeting Nancy McKee who, um, who said, I need to bring you to New York and help launch my career here in the city. Now, I'm not saying it's been champagne wishes and caviar dreams ever since. But a detour from the future you plan can end up leading you into a future like Joseph you had only dreamed about. Remember Joseph, who made all the right decisions, didn't get to follow the path he intended to. At almost no point along the way, would he have guessed where he was going to end up being. So if you make a really bad decision, or several bad decisions, and you will, that's not the end of God's plans for you. So if you feel uncertain about your academics, career, finances, or relationship situation. And if you haven't, you will. That's not the end of God's plans for you. Even when people intend to harm you, and unfortunately they will, that is not the end of God's plans for you. Sometimes the most frustrating part about success, however you define success, is that we expect a linear path, but it never is. And while expecting a winding, sometimes steep, often difficult path, doesn't make the path you'll walk easy, it will help you remember that in those times of struggle, like Joseph, they're not the end of God's plans for you. May God continue to bless all of you on your journey.